Tonight we're reading from the book of Malachi again. We're in chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 16. As we mentioned last week, um, the the versification, the chapter divisions, um, they don't quite reflect uh, the structure of the book, so we're um, we're reading um, sort of outside of the the regular divisions that uh, you might see in chapters and verses. Uh, Just to refresh you as we read the text so that you'll have a little bit more clarity about what we're reading, Uh, the book of Malachi consists of six confrontations. The Lord God confronts his people six different times in this book. And because the chapter divisions, which, which are not in the inspired original Hebrew text, because they don't reflect the six confrontations, the, the chapters break in funny places, and so that's why we're reading um, places that don't quite line up with the chapters. But here's what we find in the structure of each of the confrontations in this book. Each confrontation is marked somewhere in the confrontation with the Lord bringing a charge. Maybe he says, you've done this. And then it's followed very quickly by the people responding to him, pleading ignorance. Uh, but how have we done this? So the first confrontation, which we looked at last week, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, God says, I have loved you. But then the people say, how have you loved us? Then the second confrontation that we looked at, same pattern, Malachi 1, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God accuses, you have despised my name. And then the people plead ignorance. But how have we despised your name? So last week, we looked at the first confrontation. We looked at part of the second confrontation. This week, tonight, we will look at the last part of the second confrontation. That's here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And then we're going to also look at the third confrontation, chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. So one verse short of the end. Broadly speaking, this second confrontation centers on problems in worship and the priesthood, This third confrontation centers on problems in marriage. So with a little bit of that that structure, let's read now from the scriptures. Malachi 2, 1 through 16. And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear and if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already, because you do not take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts, and one will take you away with it. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace, And I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth and injustice was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge and people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But... You have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people. 
because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is a second thing, the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering any more, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And and why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says, that he hates divorce, for it covers one garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. The word of the Lord. In today's text, broadly speaking, this second confrontation concerns problems in church. The third confrontation centers on problems in marriage. And here's what we see in the text. Men disappoint us. Men disappoint us. The priests fail to do as they ought, and husbands fail to do as they ought. So three things here. We look at the men who disappoint us, the men who disappoint us. Then we see the covenant that men break, and then how to keep the covenant. The men who disappoint us, the covenant that they break, and how to keep the covenant. So we'll start with the men who disappoint us. Who are these men who disappoint us? Priests and husbands. Priests, Malachi 1, 6 through 2, 9. Husbands, Malachi 2, 10 through 16. How do the priests disappoint us? Well, last week we looked at part of the Lord's confrontation against them. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. The people were bringing lackluster worship to God, defective offering, discards. And the priests would receive it, and they would offer these unacceptable things, even though it was contrary to the commandment that God had given them. And then in this text, the Lord further confronts the priests and the people, He brings a second charge against these men, verses 6 through 9. The priests are also failing this way. They fail to teach the law of God to the people of God. The crux of of the charge against them is here in verse 7. It says, For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth. The priest was the key continuing ordained office holder 
that God had appointed in his church and the priest was to lead and to administer worship. The priest also was to instruct the people in God's revealed word. And the priest was to be there to answer questions that the people had about how to apply God's word in their worship and in their lives. So you might have something like this in Israel. A woman might come to the priest and ask for help. She might say, my husband, we're wondering if he has leprosy and we're wondering what to do about that. And so the priest was to instruct, consult the instruction in God's word about leprosy in the scriptures and to show her what was to be done in that situation. Or, or maybe a man would come to a priest in those times and he would say something like this. My son, he accidentally killed a man in a work-related accident. What should we do now? The priest would show the family the places in God's word that spoke about how that man needed to find shelter, how the case should be conducted, and when, if possible, the son could be restored to society. These priests, the priests were of the ancestral line of the tribe of Levi. Verse 6, Malachi describes what the priests should have been doing. These priests who were in the line of Levi. It says the faithful priesthood would do this, verse 6. The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and turned many away from iniquity. So did you see there the three things described in the mandate for priests? Teaching the scriptures, living the scriptures, turning people away from disobedience to the scriptures. You see all of that there in that, that verse 6. Teaching the scriptures. It's, it's, it says the law of truth was in his mouth. He was speaking the law. Living the truth. He says they were walking with me. They're supposed to live this out. Turning people from disobeying the scriptures. It, it says that they turned many from iniquity. But the priests were not doing those three things the way that they should have. And, and then verses 6 through 8 repeats these three mandates for the church leaders. Teaching. It's there in verse 7b. He is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. God has given these leaders his message. And they were to bring it. The priest was to bring the words of God to the people of God, instruct them. There was teaching in seven, and then there was living out that word that was required of the priests. Verse eight, but you have departed. You priests have departed from the way. Even if they had been proclaiming the word, teaching it, instructing it, they weren't walking it out. Their personal lives were, were marked by contradictions to their teachings. And then there's teaching, there's living, and then there's turning people from disobedience. Verse 8, it says, you've caused many to stumble at the law. They didn't speak up. They didn't correct the people when they sinned, when they were bringing these unacceptable offerings to the Lord. Verse 9 also indicates that these priests were showing partiality in how they administered the law. Maybe, maybe if a situation arose for their counsel or, or for their judgment, they showed favoritism to those who were more influential. They, they showed favoritism to those who were rich. And, and they ruled against the poor. Now, in our days, this, we don't have priests. This priestly function is now the duty of elders and pastors, church officers, teaching the word, living the word, turning people from disobedience. The elder and the pastor Timothy 
must proclaim and instruct the people in the word at all times, it says, in season and out of season. He is to do this. And that tells us we all need this. We all, even pastors and elders, we need a person to teach and to preach the word to us. And that's what we do in presbytery. We all need it. We all need to submit ourselves to the authority and the the speaking of the word. The life of the elder also, not just the teaching, not just the proclamation, the life of the elder must match the words of the elder. So Titus 2, 7, speaking of the elders, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. And then 1 Timothy 4, 12, elders, pastors are to be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. He's saying your life is speaking. Your, your mouth is speaking when you teach, but your life is also speaking. And, and you're, you're to be an example, both with your words and your conduct. And so you who are elders, you who are perhaps elders to be one day, you are to verbally instruct people in the teachings and in the doctrines of the Bible. You are to recommend to the people sound teachings and sound recordings for the people. And, and you who are elders, you who are elders to be one day, you are to live true to those teachings in the doings of the church where everybody sees you and observes you, but also in the privacy of your home, elders and, and you elders to be. You are to live that way, faithfully, walk out the word when no one's watching, when everyone is watching. And you are also to do this third function, turning people away from sin. You are to correct. You are to admonish. You are to rebuke others. Verse 7 says, when you have this, when you have church officers, people should also seek the law from his mouth, it says in verse 7. And so elders, when people ask you for advice, will they hear instruction from the Bible? Will, will they hear answers that come from the word, that come from the Lord? N- not just your own ideas, not just popular culture, but from the Bible, from the word. Now, this isn't limited to ministers or to elders, to priests. The Bible teaches the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. And so, all Christians, if you're a Christian, even if you're a child, if you're a Christian, you have a priestly identity. Revelation 1.5 says that Jesus has made those who are believers kings and priests to his God and Father. You're a royal nation, a, a royal nation of priests unto God. 1 Peter 2.5 says that Christians are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. That's part of what Jesus did for all of us, to all of us. And so if you're a believer... All of you have a call to speak the word to one another. Not just elders speaking it, but fellow members. And and if you're a child, that means you've got a call to, to speak the word. Maybe at times to your brother and sister. Maybe at times to a grown up when you see something that doesn't quite add up. You're wondering about it. Could even be your own parents. And and especially though if your parents You've got the same kind of priestly, this three-part responsibility as parents. Parents, you have a call as 
priest to speak the word to your children. And you have a call to live the word in front of your children, both when you're in public and in the privacy of your home. Do your children know that the scriptures are the controlling voice in your value system? Not just your, re- your religious talk, your, your religious doctrine, if we can call it that, but, but how you treat one another, how you spend your money, what you do in your free time, what you find enjoyable, what you find distasteful, who you open your doors to. Do your children know that the Bible is the controlling voice for your value system? And, and the marriage that they see, the marriage that they have seen, is it characterized by what the Bible obligates us to, by grace, by self-sacrifice, by, by gentleness? Is that what they saw portrayed in the marriage that they grew up looking at? And, and when you need guidance, when you have a challenging decision, and we all have those, the Lord brings us to that over and over at different points in our life, when you need guidance, does the word guide you? Is that what they're seeing? And, and when you're worried, do you take shelter in the Lord. Is that what your children see? That you're taking shelter in the Lord when you're worried? And, and when you're afraid, do you tell your household that you are afraid, but you're taking shelter in him? Do they ever hear you say things like, okay, family, I'm worried about tomorrow's presentation at the job, but I'm turning it over to the Lord. What about turning people, not just speaking, not just living. What about turning people uh, from disobedience? Members, people of God here, do you with humility, do you correct sin in one another? Do you inquire about things that don't seem like they line up with the word and, and you think you're seeing something like that? And, and when people come to you, are you receptive to another believer exercising their priestly function towards you? Are you receptive to the priestly ministry of the word from your fellow member. No, no matter how young they are, no matter how recently they've come into the fellowship, do they have access to inquire about an area in your life that may need a little bit of challenge or correction? Maybe, for example, you've got a friend, a friend who's in the, in the congregation, and your friend's concerned about how it seems like you're getting sucked into your screens. Are you receptive to hear from them about that? Or, or maybe you've got a loved one who is, who is concerned about your insane work hours and they inquire about it. Or, or maybe it goes the other way. They're concerned about your laziness. They're concerned about your, your subpar, shoddy work. But are you intreatable if they ask about that, if they express concern about that? But, but these priests were neglecting all of that. They were neglecting to instruct the people. They were neglecting to live out the word. They were neglecting to correct the people according to the law of God. And so these men disappoint. These men disappointed. There are other men, though, who disappoint here. Husbands disappoint. That's in verses 10 through 16. And this is the third confrontation that comes from the Lord. He confronts husbands about two things. Two things. Treacherously entering into marriage, but also treacherously exiting marriage. Treacherously entering into marriage, that's in verses 10 through 12. Treacherously exiting marriage, that's in verses 13 through 16. If you look at these verses, the word treachery is used in almost every verse there in the passage. That word treachery, it could be translated faithless 
It, it's speaking of betrayal. Look at how they enter marriage with treachery in verses 10 through 12. It says here in Malachi 2.11, Judah has dealt treacherously or faithlessly, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. And what is it? He has married the daughter of a foreign god. He's treacherously entered into a marriage. He's married not a daughter of Zion. He's married a daughter of a foreign god. Here's the problem. These men married women who were outside of the faith, outside of the covenant community. You had believers who were marrying unbelievers. Now, God has no problem with interracial marriage. He has no problem with it. He has no problem with inter-ethnic marriage. And you see that in the Bible, uh, even in the line of Christ. Ruth, the Moabitess, marrying into the line. But God is incensed at interfaith marriage within the church. Why? Why? Verse 10, if you're a believer, you've got one father, one God, one covenant, and one system of morality in that covenant. And your God insists that you marry in the faith, within the faith. Why? Because when you marry, you're not just bringing your bride home to, to your house that maybe you've set up an apartment or, or you've, you've got a, a place that you have purchased and it's your house and you're bringing her into your house. When you're a Christian and you marry, you bring your bride into God's house. And God's house has only room for one God, himself. There's not room for another God in God's house. But verse 11 says they married the daughter of a foreign God and and they're trying to bring her and her God into the house of God, into the temple. And this is not just Old Testament teaching. This is true also in the New Testament. Christians may only marry within the faith. So 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? And what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. So when a believer enters into marriage with an unbeliever, Malachi says, when you do that, you're taking a step towards extinction. Verse 12, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware. He's talking there about the continuing faith, not just of you, but of your children. The continuing faith of the children that will come out of that marriage if the Lord gives children. It says later on in our chapter, God seeks godly offspring. God's design for his people. God's design for the faith of the fathers is that it would become the faith of the children. But if you marry outside the faith, it doesn't matter how optimistically you feel about this other person who's not a believer. You're going to face strong resistance to raising your children in the knowledge of God. Interfaith marriage trends towards ending the line of faith in your family, in your generation. And that's why 
men, faithful men like Ezra and Nehemiah spoke so strongly against the interfaith marriage that the people committed. That's why Moses confronted this in Numbers. When we were in Numbers, chapters 25, it, it has to be confronted very strongly. God has spoken very directly about this. So you're a Christian man. You're not married. There are women that you will find attractive who are not Christians. It will be that way. You just have to accept that. And you also need to recognize this. Solomon maimed himself, spiritually maimed himself by marrying beautiful women who were outside of the faith. Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your romantic life? Is Jesus Christ the Lord of of your close companionships? Is he? This is how it has to work out. Now, God also has a second charge against these husbands, against these men. Not only were some of them entering marriages faithlessly, they were also ending marriages faithlessly. They were treating their wives with treachery, verses 13 through 16. We know from the writings of those days back then, it was very easy for a husband to divorce his wife. The Divorce Act was easy. Maybe the only hassle was just sorting out the property, the the property settlement. Why were men divorcing their wives? Well, as you read these verses, 13 through 16, the word treachery or, or betrayal or faithlessness, it just keeps recurring, doesn't it? He did her wrong by doing this, it says. He did her wrong. Now, how? Why? What was going on? As you read this, Maybe you notice that the word adultery is not even raised here. So what kind of treachery are we talking about? The prophets have no problem bringing up adultery and and showing how marital adultery is just this example of the spiritual adultery that people are falling into. There's no problem talking about the term adultery, but he doesn't even mention it here. So is there a different kind of treachery that's actually in view with with, uh, these men and that Malachi is condemning here. Well, there are two clues here. The first clue is this. These are long marriages that the husband ended. These were long marriages that the husband is ending. It says the wife of your youth in verse 14. The wife of your youth in verse 15. The charge is this. You've dealt in bad faith, treacherously, with the wife of your youth. Verse 14. She's been your companion since the two of you were young. But now, after all that time, you treat her like this? Yeah, she's, she's older now. She's changed. And you no longer want her. That's the first clue. It was the wife of their youth. The second clue is in verse 16. And, and here the Hebrew of the verse puzzles commentators. And from what I t- can tell, and, and other major translations reflect this, from what I can tell, the best translation Contrary to what we read in in the New King James tonight, the best translation would actually be something like this. Verse 16 would say this, for the man who hates his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, he covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be treacherous. I I think the better translation, and, and many commentators agree, would be, the man who hates his wife and then divorces her. 
That's condemned. That's treachery. The man hates his wife, and so he divorces her. The husband no longer likes his wife and treats her accordingly. The man has had it with her. He he thinks, he says, she just doesn't measure up. He imagines that there would be other women he would like better. He would rather be without her than with her, and he treats her that way. He does not love her or cherish her. He, He has come to the point where he hates her, and so he divorces her. One commentator calls this aversion divorce. Aversion divorce. He hates her, and so he divorces her. The husband who says, I can't stand you anymore. And so he takes steps to end the marriage. The Bible permits divorce under certain circumstances, certain conditions, adultery, abuse, unbelief. And we can go into that, but that's not the focus in our text here. The Lord says, if you divorce her because you dislike her, if you treat her in such a way that she has to flee, she has to, functionally, you're divorcing her because you dislike her, that's treacherous. The New Testament commands not hatred, but love. Colossians three nineteen, husbands, love your wives. Ephesians 5, 3, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. If you hate her and divorce her, you emotionally do violence to her, Malachi says. If you hate her and divorce her, it covers your garments with violence against the wife of your youth. You lost your love for her, you hate her, you divorce her, and now you've hurt her, he says. So let's, let's try to make this practical. What does it look like when a husband hates his wife? How do you even get to that point? Have have I gotten to that point? It starts with this. It starts with a loss of courtesy. You, You stop speaking with civility. Maybe that starts just in the privacy of your home. You're not polite. You don't speak with civility in the privacy of your home. And then it gets broader. And and maybe you do it when you're out in public, in the car, or in the parking lot, or even out just in front of everyone. And, and then not only do you stop speaking with civility, you start speaking with contempt. Or, or maybe you stop speaking to her. So husband, I, I have some questions for you. Husband, have you stopped being tender in how you treat your wife? Have you stopped being tender-hearted in how you view your wife. When did the gentleness end? Husband, when did you stop liking her? When did you start hurting her and start hating her? And for you wives who are hearing this, I don't know what your situation is. Wives, when Did he stop loving you and start despising you? When? We've looked at the men who disappoint, these priests who fail to instruct in the word. We've looked at these husbands who enter and exit marriages faithlessly. Now let's look at the covenant that men break. These disappointing men, in both of the cases, their sins are compounded, not just because they failed in their their roles as priests and husbands, 
But it's compounded because it's worse because they're also breaking a covenant, a solemn relationship with stipulations that God has witnessed and set up. The sins of the priests were not merely against the people. The sins of the priests also wronged God. The sins of the husbands were not merely against the nation, against society, but not even just against their wives. The sins of the husbands, they were transgressing a covenant before God. And that means their sin came with covenant consequences. For the priests, what were the consequences of their unfaithful doctrinal instruction? Verse 2, they'd broken the covenant with Levi that he talks about. And he says, I'll send a curse upon you. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces. Verse 4, so that my covenant with Levi may continue. The image is that God is going to take these priests, face them, and, and the priests will be there with their robes and their headdresses and all of their finery, and he's going to spread dung on their faces, publicly shame them. They fail to teach and judge according to the word. They'll be shamed by God for that. And their descendants will suffer for their faithfulness, he says. The Bible says that those with the responsibility to instruct the church, they, it's always been this way. They face a stricter judgment. James 3.1, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And for these husbands, these ones who are treacherously entering into marriages or treacherously exiting, ending marriages, these husbands are also bringing covenant consequences from God on themselves. If, if you're treacherously ending a marriage, you're bringing covenant consequences from God on yourselves. It's, it's way bigger than the whole legal system and, and however the courts rule in your favor against your favor. Verse 10, this behavior profanes the covenant of the fathers, the covenant with Abraham and Moses. Verse 14, you've wronged your companion, your wife by covenant. Verse 14 says, God witnessed this covenant. God attended your wedding. God listened to you take those vows at your wedding, and he will hold you to those vows, even as you attempt to free yourself and extract yourself from those wedding vows. Colossians 3.9 says, Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Husband, are you harsh with your wife? Do you think bitter thoughts about her? Criticize her severely. And what's the consequence of hating your wife? Verse 13, the Lord does not regard the offering anymore from these husbands, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. He's saying there, God won't hear your prayers when you're doing this. God will not receive your worship. He won't receive your offerings if you do this. He, He says to husbands who hate their wives, expect God to turn down your prayers. Expect God to deny your prayers. Husband, if if you fail to honor your wife, it says in 1 Peter 3, 7, if you fail to honor your wife, expect your prayers to be hindered, to be hung up, to be delayed in transit, to be sidelined and stuck on the for later pile. Let's close now with how to keep the covenant. How to keep the covenant. Men disappoint us. Church leaders, they disappoint us. Parents disappoint. Husbands disappoint. And maybe you sense that you're that man. You're the man who's disappointed. You failed your people. You failed the congregation. You failed your wife. How can you keep the covenant? 
when you're such a disappointment. You need to see the man who never disappoints. You need to see the man who kept the covenant on your behalf and calls you to be a covenant keeper. In the gospel, Jesus Christ is the man who never disappoints. Jesus is the faithful priest, the one man who faithfully taught us the word of God, who faithfully walked it out, who faithfully called us out of our iniquity and our disobedience. And Jesus is that one man, the priest who was punished for our iniquities so that we bear them no more. Not only is he that faithful priest, Jesus is also the faithful husband. And he's the faithful husband in this way. Jesus did not hate us. Jesus did not despise us. Jesus did not divorce us. Jesus, on on totally opposite end, Jesus is the husband who went to hell and death to keep his marriage together, to keep his bride, to gain a bride. Jesus Christ married not a human bride, but a spiritual bride, his wandering bride, the church. And he cleanses us from all of our unrighteousness by his life and sacrifice. And so we won't be cut off from the tent of Jacob. We won't be cut off from the line. We won't face extinction. We won't be shamed with the dung on our face before the throne. Jesus is the one who was cut off. Jesus is the one who was publicly shamed so that we could be grafted into his family line. Do you see in Jesus Christ a husband of your own who will never despise you and never divorce you? When you were at your worst, he gave his best for you. He loved you to the uttermost. And because he did that on the cross, you know that he will love you as you take up your own cross. And it's so hard. And as we close, this is what we need to all see about what he's doing in us, the bride of Christ, what Jesus is doing, what the Spirit is making of you. Whom he loves, he makes beautiful. Revelation 21.9 describes just what he's doing with his bride, his beloved bride. The Spirit says, come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Could it be, church, bride of Christ, could it be that Christ is making you unbearable? Bearably beautiful. Let's pray. Lord, we are in awe that you loved us before you made us holy, before you made us beautiful. You loved us. And how much more now that you are making us glorious, sharing your glory, you must love us. We pray, Lord, that you would do the good work that you have intended and that you have ordained and that we would enter into these good works that you've ordained for us. We pray that you would speak to us, that the life of Christ as he walked out the word would be always in front of us and beautiful in our sight and that you would call us back from our disobedience and wandering and that we would quickly respond and run back to you with joy, with freedom, with hope,
We pray that you would do this in our midst, in our lives, for Jesus' sake. Amen.